Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5. As you're opening up, church, think about the temptation uh, for all of us, for all Christians, I think, but especially for introverted Christians, uh, to come into a church service like this um, and to come through those doors and and never um, fully experience what God would intend for us. So So we would come into a room like this, we would sit down and sing a few songs and, and pray with all of our heart when the pastor's praying or when someone's from here, we're praying with them, we're hearing the word of God, we're listening to a sermon, we're giving tithes and offerings, and yet we, we turn around and leave, we walk out those doors without ever having uh, a meaningful interaction with another believer. There's a temptation that that could be the case for anyone, and I know for, for, for those that are introverted, that's absolutely a temptation for you. And if you don't believe me, you can sort of see that trend happening in our nation right now uh, among the church in America. Um, a large percentage, some research groups estimate 30% of church members will not return to physical gatherings after COVID uh, is com- completely not what it is now. 30%. Um, because, and I think the reason that, that we would see that trend is because it's, it's, it's easier, it's more convenient, it's less messy to sit at home and, 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 and pull up the live stream and get church from our couch. And, and that's not what God's intended. Um, but, but, I, but I think it's becoming a trend and it's becoming something that'll probably stay, unfortunately, uh, for, for many people. And I believe many genuine believers that love the Lord, it's become sort of their new normal because it's the easier thing. And the sad reality is that we can be here even this morning physically and not know the people that are sitting right beside us on the pew or our two or three pews in front of us. Maybe we know their names, but we actually we, we, we have no knowledge of who they are. We don't have a, a relationship with them such that we know meaningful things about them, such that we can be praying for them. And, and our hearts are heavy with the things that their hearts are heavy with because we've not invested our lives in one another. And, and, if, and here's the thing. Think about this in more of a, a practical sense. If I came to you this morning, even right now, just Paul's sermon and walk down here among you and and came to any random one of you and said, hey, could you tell me that person three rows up? Could you tell me their name? And maybe, maybe something that you've been praying for them about. How many of us, even me just giving you a hypothetical like that, like <laughs> your heart started beating fast because the thought of it just, just, just sends chills down your spine. And I wonder why is that the case, especially in the body of Christ? Like if we were at a movie theater with complete strangers, that's a different thing. If we were at a football game and like, that's a different thing, but this, this is the church. This is the family of God. We're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet I still think that the thought of that, the fear of that, would, would make some of us have chills run down our spine because we don't. Maybe we don't have those intimate relationships that we should. And listen, this is why this is important, because the, the people sitting in this room and in that room over there and out on the front lawn and in their cars this morning, I know this, these are strange days, but the people that are here in the body at Poplar Spring are your family. If they've been born again and they're part of this covenant community, then the relationships you have with them are, according to the scriptures, and that's what we're going to see this morning, they are your family members. And that's what Paul is bringing forward for us today in the text. That's the language he uses, the image that he uses here when he's instructing Timothy in chapter 5. Now to put it in context, think about, think about Timothy's context. He's in Ephesus. And think about what we know already from our study of, of 1 Timothy and all of that means. We know that Timothy's young. 
We know that he's, uh, he's, he's pretty timid at this point in his life by some things that Paul has already told, told him and then instructed him in. Uh, we know that he's not someone who would by nature lead the charge into battle. He's kind of hesitant, has a little bit of a faint of heart maybe going on. Conflict is not his cup of tea. And yet, from what we know in the, in the, in the text, in the letter that Paul's writing him, conflict has come looking for him. When you think about what we've already seen last week, older members were looking down on him for his youth or inexperience, or at least there was the opportunity for them to do that. Uh, some of the elders had sinned against their conscience and, and had shipwrecked their faith, Paul says. Men like Hymenaeus, who preached that the resurrection had already happened, effectively canning or tossing out the gospel. Last week we saw in the text, endless genealogies and silly, irreverent myths had become the main subject and main topic for these false teachers that were in the church. Adding to that confusion, uh, we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that some women in the church were, and I'm quoting, weak women who were burdened with sins and led astray by various passions and had a record of subverting church order, which we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 2. All of these things are piling up. That's a lot of drama for a guy who doesn't like conflict and confrontation. And even still, with all of that on the table in in Ephesus, in Timothy's context, Paul charges Timothy with leading through these circumstances as a family. That's the image that he gives Timothy when he talks about how to, to, to be a church and how to live among one another and do life together. That's the image that Paul has in mind when he gives the practical instructions that he's going to give to Timothy, the family. And you'll see that in this week's text as we read together. Uh, I've broken it down in a couple of different, in two different ways. Um, the first two verses of chapter 5, given us this heading or this, this, this point, that we're to love everyone in the church as a family, right? Uh, father, mother, brother, sister, that's the language that, that Paul's going to use. And then the, the, the major portion that we're going to see this morning, verses 3 through 16, is the second point, that we're to care for those in the church who have no family, right? So sort of, sort of opposing ideas, love everyone in the church as a family, care for those in the church who have no family. So let's jump into the text. You listen even as I, as I read for these, these uh, relationships and the, the familial language that Paul's going to use. Verses 1 and 2, love everyone in the church as a family. What does that mean for us? 1 Timothy chapter 5, let's look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. Do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Let's think about each one of these categories as Paul has outlined them for us. I think this is incredibly practical, church. Uh, Older men. Now, thinking about Timothy and knowing his timidity and his, his struggles just personality and who he is as as a person, you can imagine a scenario, right, where Timothy knows that there's error, right? He knows that there's a situation where he he must confront biblically an older man in the church. He knows that he's called to do that as the pastor, as the shepherd here, and so he, he rehearses what he needs to say, right? You can picture him just sort of standing in a mirror, getting it right, because he wants to do it well, and he wants to do it faithfully, and, is, and, he's, and he knows he has to do it, so he's, he's rehearsing it, he's got it down, he knows exactly what he needs to say, and then he goes before this older gentleman, and his adrenaline is pumping, in the moment his anxiety takes over, and he spews rebuke all over him, like a, like a chastisement, like a rebuke, like a like a tongue lashing, like an Old Testament prophet rebuking the Amalekites, right? This impression, right, it's sort of, we don't know that happened. I'm giving you a hypothetical, knowing Timothy's personality and the instruction here from Paul. 
If that happens, it leaves the impression that he neither respected the man's age, nor did he care for him personally. Because if he would have, he would have handled it a little bit differently. And that's the, that's the instruction that, that Paul's giving here. He's, he's teaching Timothy, and, and us as a church, I believe church, because all of this is practical for us, for godliness. I think he's teaching him here, here that, that and even, even if an older man needs correction, I don't think he's giving him an excuse. He's not giving him an out here to just avoid it, sweep it under the rug, it's okay, he's an older man. No, I think he's, he's telling him, in the way that you handle it, in the way that you go to him, you have to think through and you have to treat people differently. It still has to be dealt with, but do it with care as you would your father. Paul's teaching Timothy and us today about our disposition, our demeanor, uh, our tone, the way that we have conversations. He says in the text, encourage him as you would your father. And some of you in this room this morning or in the other room, you've, you've had these sorts of tough conversations with your father or with a parent where you've had to go to them and say, Dad, this wasn't best or this wasn't right or I don't, I don't think this is the best path for you or maybe you've had to give some some counsel or advice to an aging father who's no longer able to make decisions for himself. And so you know the, the difficulty that this situation presents, and, and you know from experience that this is not a position of superiority or even a position of equality, but, 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 a, but a place where you would go to him with, in kindness, with loving respect, and say, Dad, I need to have a hard conversation, Right? Like you understand that because you've dealt with it with your earthly dad, right? And that's what Paul's giving us some instruction here. This is not a tongue lashing. This is a kind, careful correction done with love, done with humility. Listen, church, this is important for us to understand just as we relate to one another as a family. Tone matters. It's so important in our ministry. It's so important in our interactions with one another. Tone is important to how we do life together as a family. You can't say the same thing to every person in the same way. That's what Paul's getting at here by even giving us these categories. There's a principle, this principle will apply to the, the next three categories that Paul's going to give us as well. And so you say, well, well how, uh, how do you say something? And, and, and here's the, I think this is why it's important for us. How you say something, the tone in which you say something is often is as important as what you're saying. Because if it's not heard, if it's not received, if it's not taken, then why did, what, what good did it do to even say it? And so I think that's what Paul's giving us here. His point is that even in correction, honor must be shown to your older family members like he's your dad. So treat him like it. Treat him like it. You're saying, Matt, how do we do that? How do we, how, do we, how do we put some flesh and bones on this? How do we put some application behind this? And what does it look like to do it even among us as a church here at Poplar Spring? I think the practical application here is endless. And I hope that in your growth groups, in your conversations around the lunch table, in your D groups, that you're having these conversations and asking what does it look like for us at Poplar Spring to to hear the word of God here and respect older men and by association older women in our, our church family. I think there's countless ways to do it, but I think it at least begins with how we speak, with our tongue. Listen to what John Stott says in his commentary. Let me also point out that John Stott is 75 years old when he's writing this commentary. So he offers us a really in, a unique insight into the, this particular topic. This is, what, this is what John Stott says. He says, I find here good biblical warrant for a recognition in the congregation of the generation gap. True, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, yet it seems strange to me that in the West, United States, when students breeze up to me and hail me by my first name, even though I'm old enough to be their great-grandfather. The Asian and African cultures are wiser since they encourage young people to address the older generation as uncle or auntie. I don't know if you've ever been to Africa or Asia, but I've experienced this myself. I thought it was strange at first because I knew they weren't related. And yet this, this you know, 12-year-old, 13-year-old boy was calling this man his uncle. 
And the, the uncle was a missionary. He's a white guy. So I was like, I know there's no relationship here. Why are you? It's a, it's a, it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of honor. I'm not saying that's what we have to do, but I think we at least have to ask the question, how do we show honor to those that are older in the way that we talk, communicate with them? And so this starts with me, church family. I may be your pastor, but I'm going to show honor and respect, and you're going to hear me say, yes, ma'am, no, sir, and because it's a, it's a show of respect. It's a sign of honor. You're going to hear me say, Mr. Glenn, Brother Junior, because it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of honor. And this is a way that we show that honor. And we have, we have to instill this in our kids because it's not natural, right? I promise you it's not natural. We're working on our four-year-old right now, and it's the most unnatural thing. I bet we correct him 100 times a day. But it takes that, and it's worth that because it shows honor and respect. And here, here's the thing, too. You, you, may, you may hear me even saying this and be like, Matt, that's silly. This is, this is just a cultural thing, or this is just a southern thing. If you lived anywhere else in the world, it would not be the case. And I, I look at cultures like Asia and Africa and, and Palestine in Paul's day 2,000 years ago, and I, I say, well, I don't think it's just southern. I, I think it's probably biblical to, in the way that we speak and communicate with one another, to realize these relational, generational dynamics and show respect and honor where honors do. And so I think we go a long way in doing that, even in the way we speak. Let's continue, though. Uh, he goes to another category. He says, younger men. Paul tells him, with younger men, uh, you, you, you relate to them, interact with them as brothers, he says, as equals. God has given pastoral leadership, a role to you, Timothy, and he's not given it to you so that you think of these people as this, this flock as yours, that they are your people. No, they're your brothers and sisters. That's the way you relate to them. That's the way you interact with them. A family that, that should care deeply about one another. So this informs us of the way that we think about pastoral oversight, the way that you relate to your elders, because that's the context here as Paul's talking to Timothy. It helps us to think through rebukes and correction and how we hear and receive that as well as how we go and bring that to one another. It shows us that exhortation and rebuke should be received in the church as family members, as, as brothers and sisters. So here's the thing. If a, if a brother or sister in Christ comes to you, and questions a decision or, or, or tries to help you, steer you, offer you wisdom, correction in a, in a pattern that they see in your life or a mistake that they see you headed towards, the proper response is not, get out of my business, or, you know, only God can judge me, or, hey, why don't you go get that log out of your eye, hypocrite? Like, that response is not the proper response. No, our first thought should be like, man, this person loves me. This person loves me so much that they would, they would, perhaps go through an awkward situation or do the hard thing of coming to me and confronting me about this. Why? Because they're my brother. They're my sister. And they're doing it out of love because we are a family. Do you see how this informs our, our, our relationships, how this changes our thinking as a family, how it changes our knee-jerk reactions to our interpersonal re relationships, right? It changes the way we hear and receive correction. And listen, church, we must do this. We must do this. We must go to one another when we have a fault, a concern, a hurt, a grievance. Because it's the right thing. It's the biblical thing. And think about what it does to the body. If Paul's giving us family language here, brother, sister, mother, father, how in the world can we just ignore this and let grievances go un unnoticed or un unbrought to attention? How can we be a healthy family if we're not willing to talk to one another, even about hard things? We must do it, church. We have to seek one another out. And when we do, we do it in love as a brother or sister, and we receive it in love as a brother or sister. Let's continue. He's, he mentions older women here, similar to the instruction uh, of an older man, but with, I think, even more grace and care. 
As you think about your own mom, as you think about your grandmother, how would you speak to her? How would you care for her? Now go and do likewise to the older women among you in your faith family, in your church body, in the family of God. I can tell you, life as a pastor would be much more difficult if it were not for the older women in our church. They are the spiritual mamas and grandmas in this family, and they are strong, and they are a benefit and a blessing to us. They encourage us. They send us sweet desserts. Good. They send us kind letters of encouragement and thoughtful um, uh, emails or texts. They are incredibly gracious and a blessing to us, a blessing to me as a pastor that I don't deserve. And, and, and I'm not saying that, ladies, you need to do this. and take. A, I'm saying this is already happening among you, among our older women in the church. And I'm pointing out that when you know that to be the case, it changes the way you have conversations with them and about them. You speak to them as you would grandma or mom with a love and a tenderness and a care because that's what they've afforded to you. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Think through how you're having those conversations. And then he has one final one he says with younger women. And this one comes with an additional comment Uh, in addition to the family comparison thing that he's been doing with the other relationships, he says this, younger women as sisters, and then in the added comment, in all purity. I think the added comment is important because it's all too often a problem in the church. What does it mean to exhort a younger woman as a sister with all purity? Well, I have three sisters. No brothers, by the way, I have three sisters. And I can assure you with no hesitation That from the time I was a small boy and my mom had my first sister to literally right now, the thought has never crossed my mind, never a hint of the thought has ever crossed my mind of kissing my sister or being affectionate, showing intimate, romantic relationships with my sister. It's never crossed my mind. (laughs) But at the same time, as a young boy, and even right now, if you thought about hurting my sister's If you thought about doing something to them to harm them, I'd beat you to a pulp. Let me back up. 1 Timothy 3, right? Elders are not supposed to be violent. So I would would die for them. Maybe that's what I should say. Why? Because I love them. They're precious to me. I'd guard them with my life. They're my sisters. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. He, He understands that pastoral warmth and care and and loving the congregation as a pastor should can often be and often is misinterpreted as romantic affection. And Paul's saying, be on guard about this, Timothy. Know that this is a possibility. And I think there's even reason to believe that it it was a possibility for Timothy that that was even happening. If you think about chapter 5, verse 11, if you think about 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm not saying Timothy had done anything wrong at this point. I'm saying that I think there was at least this possibility because Timothy is a young single man. And Paul's saying, be careful about this, Timothy. Just know that it's a possibility. In light of that, Paul tells Timothy, treat women with the same purity and same protectiveness that you would afford your own flesh and blood sister. I think that's a good word to us, church. That as we think about women and younger women in our church, that we would be on guard in that way. As you think about all of the the sexual abuse that's happened in the church, even in the last three or four or five years, and the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement that's taken place, done by pastors, All of it, listen, all of it could have been avoided. Tons of heartache, tons of brokenness, years of of, of damage and hurt could have been avoided if this one statement had been taken to heart by the leaders of the church. We all must take it to heart. Men, we must hear this. Love your sisters in Christ as your little sister. And so we have these instructions on how we relate to one another as a church, as a family. 
And how beautiful. I think what I want you to see, church, and as we apply this, and, and I know there are multiple applications, and those applications can be different for, for us as a church, and it'll look different for a church down the road that maybe doesn't have many uh, senior adults or, or, or kids or vice versa, but, but here's the thing, church. How beautiful is the people, the, the church, the people of God, when they get this, when they live among one another as father, mother, brother, sister, and you have those sorts of relationships, how beautiful it is, that sort of grace-filled, familial living is the conduit through which the gospel goes to the nations. When we get this right, that's what Jesus is intended to happen, that we get this right, we live as a family, and we propel one another with the gospel to go forth into this dark world. Let's go into the second, and, and, and this is where the majority of our verses are. And so, second major category this morning, not only do we love those in the church as a family, we care for those in the church who have no family. And this is where Paul's going to spend the majority of his time in the, the rest of chapter 5. He's going to mention these, these groups in verses 1 and 2, mother, father, brother, sister. And now he's going to turn his attention and dive deeper down into one specific group within that family, within the church. And as he does this, we learn what it looks like to care for specifically those in the church family that don't have other family outside of their church, in particular widows. And so let's read together. Before jumping into these verses, though, I, I want to do, lay a couple groundwork, foundational sorts of things, some background. Think about the love that God has for widows in all of Scripture. Because I think that sets up for us with the instruction we're going to see here, receive here in the text. James chapter 1, verse 27. Many of you know this verse and can quote it. Pure and undefiled religion before God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. But it's not just one verse. It's not just this one verse that's really clear. It's all of Scripture. If you go back to the Old Testament... Uh, God showed his particular care for widows, even foreign widows, through his people, the Israelites. You can see that at Exodus 22, uh, Isaiah chapter 1. Then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus shows us his care for widows, uh, in particular his personal care for widows in Mark 12, in Luke chapter 7. And then you get, to John, you get to the epistles, and you get to James chapter 1, verse 27, the verse I just read to you, and you see that God cares for his widows now through the church. So, that, so that what that shows us is, is at no time in history, Old Testament, it was the Israelites. New Testament, it's Jesus. Now in the, the age of the church, it is his people that God has in all of time had a plan for taking care of widows. That's how much they mean to him. Let me also say, and this is sort of a foundational background thing, I know this is an, an incredibly sensitive subject. I acknowledge that this is a hard subject for many ladies in our church. And even the word, even hearing me say the word widow this morning, tears at wounds and in scars and hurt that, that, that is maybe decades old for you. And it's fresh again every time you hear that word. And so many godly women, young and old, in our church family have lost husbands, have been abandoned by their husband. And I know there's real pain and hurt when it comes to this topic. And so I want to walk through it with sensitivity and with care. But before we even look at a verse that would, that would apply to us as a church about widows, I, I want you to know that your pain is acknowledged, your hurt is acknowledged, your pastor knows this, this is sensitive, and, I, and we love you, and this, this family is strong, and it loves you. And, and so I, I want you to hear that. You are loved, ladies. Um, and so let's, 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 let's jump into the text. One more thing. We have to remember the context. Anytime we study scripture, but especially here, we have to remember the context. There are significant differences between widows in our day and widows in Ephesus in Paul's day. In America today, we are, by and large, a wealthy, affluent cu culture. 
Uh, People have disability and life insurance and Medicare and 401ks and nursing homes and rehab centers and all of these things that help the elderly and in particular widows. These safety nets are not bad. In fact, they're good. They're They're a good thing. But there's potential that they can lead us as a church to abandon our responsibility to care for widows. And so I just want to preface by saying that as we walk through these 14 verses, I want to understand them, just like straight up understand them, what the scriptures are saying. And then I want us to work through, and it probably will happen in growth group, small group conversations. How does this apply to us in our day and age and how the the contexts are different in particular for widows today? So three categories here in the text that we're going to see. Paul's going to walk through verse three through 16, giving us instruction for widows. And you're going to see three categories. The first is widows that need support from the church. Widows that need support from the church. Second category, widows that uniquely offer support to the church. And then three, widows that are encouraged to remarry because this supports the health of the church. All three of these are important. Let me also say these these are not hard and fast categories. There's some overlap. These are flexible categories. And I don't think Paul meant to be like category, category, category. It's just the way in which he's writing. He's describing three different groups or settings. And so I want to walk through these and think about how they apply to our church. First category is this, widows that need support from the church. Look at verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. Now, Paul's doing something here by saying truly widows. He means Paul, Paul intended there to be some qualifications to be met. Paul didn't say, hey, just go out there, find widows, wherever you may find them, and care for them be a good thing. Caring for people is always a good thing. But what Paul means here is different. He's giving us some clarification that you have a responsibility to care for certain widows, particular widows, and they're going to come with some qualifications, some things to consider. First among them, and this one's not explicit in the text, but it's, it's obvious to us because he's writing a letter to the church and specifically to a pastor in the church. These widows should be in the church. That's your, that's your responsibility. Yeah, go do kind things for widows everywhere. That's okay. But you have to care for and support the widows among you, the ones that are in your body. So that's sort of the first thing. But let's look at the qualifications that he explicitly gives in the text. The first is this. They must be without other family members to care for them. Look at verses 4 and 5. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn how to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. Why in the world is this, this qualification important? Well, it, she has family members to care for her. They should be. That's their responsibility. That's their first responsibility. And you see that in verses 4 and 5, that these certain widows, there are some widows that have someone, uh, kids, grandchildren, that can care for them, and they should. Why should they? Well, verse 4, it's pleasing in the sight of God. That's what God would dis- expect of them. Verses 7 and 8, command these things well so that they may be without reproach. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, in the context here, particularly widows, especially for members of God's household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So verse 8 shows us the negative side of it, that to not care for your relatives means that you've denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. So if that's true, then the positive side of it's also true, that caring for your, your relatives, those that are in need, need support, is a demonstration of your faith. If not caring is showing that you have no faith, then caring is showing that you do indeed have faith. So additionally here, though not explicitly mentioned, I think it's implicit that caring for relatives, when, when you should be caring for your relatives, frees the church up 
to care for those that can't or that don't have relatives. We'll see this at the end of the text. It's just not with this grouping, but by doing what you're supposed to do for your family members, it frees the church up to use its resources to care for those who have no family members, and it gives the church freedom to propel the gospel forth in ways that would have been if, or could not have been if you would have been taking care of your family members. And so let me just offer some practical encouragement here for you. I've walked with many of you, uh, had tough conversations with many of you. I've watched many of you struggle with the difficulty of caring for your aging parents and grandparents. Um, and so I've, I've seen that in, in your lives for many of you. I won't name names this morning, but just, just know that your pastor sees you. And, and also know more than that, it doesn't matter if I see you, but know that what you're doing honors God. That, that what you're doing for those loved ones demonstrates real faith. <laughs> that, that's what you're showing. You're showing that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life by you doing the hard thing and caring for those loved ones that need that care. So those trips to the grocery store that seem endless and take so much of your time, those trips to the hospital or the nursing home or the rehab center that seem never-ending, those hours that you've spent cleaning their house or bathing them, the, the sacrifices that you've made to move them closer to you or to move them into your home, all of those things, they're not wasted. They're a demonstration of the work of God in your heart and in your life as you care for them. That's what God says would please him. It's, it's an honoring thing that you would do that. It's not just a, an obligation that you have. It honors God. And so know that this morning. Be encouraged in that this morning. God is at work in you when you do that. Second qualification that Paul gives here for those that are dependent on the support of the church, is that they must depend upon God. Verse 5 says that this woman, the true widow, it says, again, is the one, the one to be cared for by the church, uh, must show evidence that she has set her hope on God. This kind of woman is the kind of woman who, who evidences in everything she does, the time she spends, the things she's found doing, in everything she does, she's depending upon God daily. She shows that faith is working in her life. The third qualification it comes from the second one, really. It's that she must be devoted to God in prayer. Verse 5, that she continues in supplications and prayers day and night. She's Christ-centered, and the way you see that is in her prayer life. The time that she spends before the Lord in prayer. And what a wonderful picture this is of the unique ministry that a Christian widow has. You know, I think Paul in my, has in mind here, and you're going to see this from the next category for sure, but I think even here what he has in mind here is, a, is an elderly or an older widow that doesn't have kids. He's already said uh, that, that to be a true widow, that, that, that she not have other family. So that, that would tend to make you think that. But then also, she doesn't have small kids that she's running after, that she's responsible for, that she's taken care of. And as a result, she's freed up to have a greater time of concentrated prayer. She continues in, in steadfast supplication and prayers day and night. Not that you can't without kids, but I think this is a particular ministry that this type of person has. And so as we watch these qualifications, church, as we see them unfolding before us, I think the scriptures are calling us, we must, we have an obligation to support widows in our church that are found in this category. It's not a, it's not a suggestion, it's not a question, it's not a, it's not a consideration, it's a command. Care for them. Then second, there's this second category that Paul gives us, widows that are uniquely offering support to the church. Continue with me in verse 9. It says this, let a widow be enrolled. You may have in your text enlisted or put on a list. If she is, not less, if she is uh, not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children and has shown hospitality and has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Verse 9 talks about being put on a list or enlisted or enrolled. 
There's some debate among scholars as to whether this is a, a support list, basically from the, the first category that I've already read to you, or if this is something else. If this is maybe a, a enrolled in a, a list of unique service or ministry to the church, the majority of scholars go with that latter view, and I tend to agree because I, I think Paul's adding some qualifications here that he didn't just specify in the first category group, and he's given some specific duties and, and traits and things that she's done and performed that I think would lend itself to this idea that she's serving the church in a unique way, in a unique role. Let's note what he says, though, in, in particular about this list, that one, she must be mature, 60 years of age or older. This was the general age of retirement. In Paul's day, this was also the general age where women didn't get married after this point if they were widowed. Uh, and so this is the, the, the practical provision and qualification that Paul gives. She's got to be older than 60. They must be faithful wives, literally a one-man woman, which is the same wording that you see for elders and deacons back in chapter 3. So she's, a, she's been a faithful wife. Uh, they must care for children. Now, this doesn't mean that this widow in this category has to have had her own children or that, that barren widows are to be left off of this list, I believe this is just a, a faithful with the gifts, faithful with the, the opportunities that she's had before her, which in Paul's context and day was primarily taking care of kids. So even if she didn't have her own, being a part of the community, the faith community especially in this context would have meant that she was in some way caring for and looking after uh, kids and those younger than her. And then in verse 10, you had this list of qualifications. We won't go into detail on each of them, but hospitable, that's understandable. A host that's hospitable, a humble servant, washing the feet of the saints, uh, unselfish and that she's caring for the afflicted, uh, devoted to every good work. She's kind. She's a hard worker among the people of God. What Paul's doing here is he's giving us a picture of a particular kind of woman, a particular type of person. He's saying that there is opportunity for uh, these widows to have an exceptional, noteworthy avenue of service in the church. And when they have, when they've met these qualifications, when they've done these things, they should be honored for it. You should note it, right? He says, put them on a list. Note it. Make recognition of it. Why? Because give honor to whom honor is due. They've been faithful in these ways. Recognize that. Honor them for that. And the woman that's lived out these qualifications has, has fulfilled a great service to the church and is continuing and should continue to do that. So I think this is as much a recognition as it is a reminder of their calling, right? So, so hear this this morning. If, if you're a widow in our church, listen, maximize your time on this planet by supporting your, your, your body, the, the family of God, the church here, in ways that you probably already are, right? And at the same time, church, show honor to faithful widows by acknowledging them, by supporting them in the local body. As far as practical application here in, in our church, I think we could say a billion things, right, about how this works out, what it looks like among our body at Poplar Spring. We're going to get into some of that later because Paul's going to have some very specific instruction here uh, about older women and younger women, and, and we're going to get into that. But here at this point, we're not going to unpack that at, at this point. But let me just say this. There is, there is, there is something that happens when an older woman takes a younger woman under her wing to teach her and disciple her that is invaluable. There is something that happens when a widow or a, a, an older woman will take a new wife or a new mother under her wing intentionally and say, come over, I want to I just spend time with you. But what the, the older woman is doing is investing. She's teaching her to be a good mom, a good, good mother, a, a good wife. There is something invaluable that happens when that takes place that, that that new wife or that new mom can't get from me behind this pulpit. That's how it's intended to be as a family. That's what Paul's getting at. Those sorts of relationships. Older woman, take her under your arm and teach her what it looks like to be a faithful mom, a faithful wife. 
pastor can, can give instruction from the word, but he can't practice this for her. He can't show her what it looks like, but you can. And so just know that that's what, that's what Paul's getting at here. Third thing, third category. There are widows that are encouraged to remarry because this supports the health of the church. Continue reading with me. We'll start in verse 12, uh, 11. It says, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so incur condemnation for having, conde- uh, for having abor- abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. Not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not say. And so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them and let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, note here before jumping into the exhortation, regardless of which interpretation you take about the list, whether it's a list of those we should support or whether it's a list of those that are supporting us in practical ministry ways, either way, Paul is making a charge here to Timothy, don't enroll younger women on that list. Don't enroll younger widows on that list. Additionally, remember the context. Paul is not saying that every single person should get married, right? Like Paul has already said in 1 Corinthians 7, he encouraged single people to stay single if they can because you're you're freed up to serve Christ. So be content in Christ and stay single if you can. But context is vital. We have to remember he's writing to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there was this particular issue with false teachers teaching that, that marriage was wrong, right? You remember that. They're teaching that marriage is wrong and should be forbidden, and this went against God's design, and, and it went against uh, the, the teachings of Scripture, and it was causing disruptions in the church. And so Paul is, at this point for Ephesus, he's correcting as much as he's giving general instruction, right? And so Paul's not making a, a sweeping statement about, hey, go get married as quick as you can when you're, when you're widowed or, or divorced or single. He's offered both challenges to us in 1 Corinthians 7 and then here as well. But what he does do in giving us this really pointed instruction is he gives us two really clear exhortations. He does it in the context of talking to to widows, especially younger widows, but I think it's applicable for all of us. This is what he says. Two things. Younger widows should avoid laziness. Second, younger widows should hate gossip. Let's look at them really quick. We're not going to dig in and spend a lot of time here, but verse 13 says younger widows, um, that these younger widows were learning to be idlers. Now, all too often, idleness or laziness is another way that maybe we would say it today, becomes an opportunity for sin. We often don't think laziness is a sin, we, or we don't at least put it into our category of the, the big sins that we often like to list and think about and talk about. But laziness is a sin, and it leads to a host of other sins, and that's what Paul's getting at here. Be careful. This is a warning to all of us, not just widows. Be careful. How are you spending your time? Because laziness will lend itself to sinfulness. And he's given us that warning. Second, And I think this is one of those that comes from laziness. Younger widows should hate gossip. Paul is clearly addressing the temptations that all Christians face. In Ephesus, though, there were younger women that were giving in to this temptation. You see it, verse 13. Going about from house to house. Not only idlers, not only were they lazy and had a lot of the free time that they were just wasting, but as so, they were gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Paul's encouragement here is that these younger women should remarry. Raise children, manage households, give no opportunity to the devil for gossip or laziness. What? That's, that's some really practical instruction to avoid some really practical sins. And so it should be a challenge to us. If you're married, unmarried, single, widowed, avoid laziness. Hate gossip. I think we can also stop right here and just acknowledge in the few moments that we have left, there's an implication here 
in what Paul's saying that, that we may fly past and not see. And it, and, it, and it really spoke to me this week, and I pray it does you. I've said it. I know my wife has said it because she said it to me, and I've heard her say it in growth group and everything like that, and I'm sure maybe you've even said it, that God really wants to teach us something about sanctification when he gives us our kids, right? Like you, you, you maybe heard that, maybe even said that yourself, but, but you want to be convicted about something? <laughs> you've said, or you want to be convicted about your bad attitude, or you want to be convicted about your, your problem with anger, well, just let your kid mimic you, and you see yourself in them, and know that I taught them that, that's convicting. And, and so, so a general concept, our, our kids are given to us as a grace of God, not only for us to raise them up, but that through them, God is raising us up, right? He's sanctifying us through our kids, through our parenting, through the traits that we see in them that they got from us. God's going to sanctify us through that. He's going to make us more like Jesus. That's a general principle that we all understand, right? But, but there's something here that's even deeper that I, I'd never seen before. Paul brings about this perspective and lays it out implicitly in the text. He says this, Mama, I know, especially for mamas, I know there are some stay-at-home dads too, but in particular, mamas in our context, I know that being with those babies all day long, every day is tough. It is work. It's a job. And, and sometimes you want to throw in the towel and just be done. And you have hard days that are hard. And we're not minimizing that. But look at what God is providing through them. You get the blessing of raising up little arrows to shoot out into the darkness. We, we get that. We understand that. That's part of our role as mom and dad to raise up believers, Christians that would go out as an army for King Jesus. But even on a more personal level for you, for your sanctification, God is sanctifying you through your kids. You say, well, how, Matt? What in the world are you talking about? Look at the text. God is taking away the temptation of laziness and gossip because, precisely because, your hands are so full with the challenges of being a mom. Have you thought about that? That's what Paul's getting at here. Now, can you be a, a gossip and can you still be lazy as a mom? Well, of course, and we must guard against that. Dad, you should too. But think about how much more idle time you would have to give in to those temptations if you were not constantly chasing after and caring for snotty-nosed little rugrats. Like, that's a grace to you. I mean, I'm not joking. Like, your hands are full. That's a blessing. That's a blessing. It's a blessing to you, it's a grace to you that instead of, think big picture, think at the end of time when you stand before King Jesus, you stand before him on that final day, and instead of having to see your sin of gossip and slander and busybody and idleness and laziness, instead of having to see that as the reason for Christ's death, you get to stand before God on judgment day with a little arrow that you have raised up and sent out into the darkness. Oh, what a grace, what a joy, and I know we won't get it perfect, we won't get it right every time, but it's a grace to you. I think that's one of the things Paul's saying here. For, for younger widows, if you can, and you can't uh, uh, continually avoid the, the, the temptation for sexual lust and desires that he talks about here in the text, go get married, raise babies, have a family. It's a good thing, and it'll keep you from idleness and sin. Let me ask you, church, as we, as we wrap up and as we close, are we caring for one another as a family? I think that's what all of this gets to. Are we caring for one another as a family that God has created us to be? Are you having meaningful and intentional conversations and interactions with anyone here today? Have you had that already? Will you have that before you get in your car and leave? Has God convicted, about, convicted you about the way that you speak to or address or talk to or talk about some of our older men or women in this church family? Do you need to start caring for, meeting the needs, the practical, the emotional needs of some of the widows in our church family? Sometimes their greatest need is a phone call. Or, or a visit. Right now, it's kind of strange with COVID. You may not want to go knock on their door, but 
But maybe that's the need that you can meet. We didn't spend a lot of time here this morning, but I think another application of this text, especially for our generation, is the category of single moms. Like moms that were abandoned or divorced and they're doing it by themselves. They're caring for their babies. They're caring for their kids. They're raising a family and they're doing it by themselves. This wasn't a major category in Paul's day because culturally it was different, but it's a major category in our day. So so maybe God's put on your heart today a single mom that you need to reach out to and care for. I don't know if it's financial, emotional, physical, just to let them know that you love them and support them and care for them. And again, I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record because I've said it every week, but I don't want us to lose sight of it. In 1 Timothy, we are dealing with some really specific, like uber-specific instructions. I mean, verses 3 through 16 is specifically widows. That's really specific. But here's the thing, church. I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that we behave as the household of God, chapter 3, verse 15. All of this is instruction on how we live together as a family so that it has a purpose, so that as a healthy body, as a healthy family, God, through us, sends the gospel to the nations. That's his design. Go back to chapter 2. That's what he's doing. He, Christ died as a ransom for the sins of all peoples of the world. And when we get this right, when we do this right, when we live as a family, it enables us to, to do that, to take that gospel truth to the world. And so maybe you're here this morning and God's convicted you about some of these things and how you interact as a family. But I'm not naive to the fact that you may be here this morning and you may just be here because somebody invited you here or just going through the motions. You're just ready to go home and eat Sunday lunch. And maybe all of these things, this, this, this really strange talk about widows, this really strange talk about caring for kids, and really strange talk about being a family, has maybe for the first time become really attractive to you. Like this idea of genuine, authentic family amongst people who were once strangers and didn't even know each other. And now they, they live together among one another as brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. That's what Christ offers you. Christ shed his blood on a cross for your sin. And he died and he rose again to show you that he's conquered death. And he offers you forgiveness of sin and a family where you can thrive. Would you come to him today? Would you repent of your sins and follow him? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for making us family. That in the word we're given instruction, really clear and, and really specific instruction for how we do this thing that we call church how we live as a body, how we function as a family. God, help us to do it. Help us to do it when it's awkward, when it's hard, when we know that conversations need to be had, but we don't want to have them. Because for the health of your family, the health of your body, this is what we've been called to. Help us think about our tongues, our interactions, our words, the intentional relationships that we're forming and building. God, we submit ourselves to you again. And God, if there's one here that doesn't know you, God, I pray today that the Holy Spirit would draw them to Christ and the gospel as being the most important decision they could ever make. Even as I'm praying, I pray they would reach out and repent of sin and trust Christ for salvation. So God, as we respond to this text, help us to apply it. Help us to give you our yes in every way that you're convicting us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. A few announcements for you, and then we'll be dismissed. Um, first is this. There's some boxes here and by the back door and in the fellowship hall for Operation Christmas Child. Uh, Miss Jean and Mr. Dennis love leading this ministry. They've not returned to worship with us yet because of their uh, health and, and concerns with COVID, but she gave me some instructions. So I did not see this until I got up here to preach, so I'm going I'm to kind of go through this. So 
That's where they're at. Um, the labels are inside the boxes. They went ahead and put those in there for you. They're due back, packed full, those boxes, on November 15th. Right? So November 15th, you've got a little while, but you need to get them now so you can start working on them as a family. Uh, if you don't know what these are, these are shoe boxes we pack with toys and goodies and we send to kids all over the world at Christmas time. And it, it goes with the gospel. The gospel comes to those families explained uh, through little booklets that go in those boxes so that the gospel is quite literally going all around the world through a $15, $20 gift that you could put together. And so you can get those boxes. If you get those boxes, though, please bring them back. If you like, man, I lost track of time. I didn't get to fill it. Still bring the box back because we had to pay for the box. We'll use it next year. But we would prefer you fill the box and bring it back because then it can be sent to somewhere in the world. Uh, November 15th is the deadline for that. Here's the new thing for this year. If you're interested in following your box, you want to know, hey, I want to know where my box went. You can do that uh, through our group leader, which is Gene Emer. Um, you can actually track your box to when it's delivered and where it's delivered. And so that, that might be a cool thing that you want to do with your kids this year for Christmas. Uh, you can contact Jean for that. If you don't have her number, I'll, I'll give it to you after the service or something like that. Uh, trunk or treat is coming up. Church, I'm, I'm excited about this because it feels like forever since we've done anything. One, uh, as a church family, for our kids, with our kids, and as an outreach to our community. And I'm so ready to be back thinking about that and doing that. And so maybe some of you are uncomfortable with that even still. If you're comfortable with it, we invite you to come and be a part of it. We're going to do trunk or treat like we traditionally have done down at the Broad Center. We're going to do it here on our property instead and uh, hopefully be able to manage some of those things a little better and, and, and do some of those things with a little bit more uh, oversight. And so October 31st, Halloween night, uh, 6.30 to 8 is the time for that. Some of you may have even seen the graphic already on Facebook. Uh, come be a part. Here's how you can be a part. T typically, we, we decorate our the trunks of our vehicles, fill them with candy. Kids come by, we give them candy. We share the love of Jesus with them. Sometimes people decide to dress up and theme their vehicle. That's fine too. Um, but, but either way, come into a trunk and let Michael know if you want to do that. Or if you can't do that, come bring candy because we run out of candy every year uh, that we've done it. Vehicles have ran out of candy. And so you can drop off candy at the church anytime. Just drop it through the back door in the office uh, and that would be greatly appreciated too. The folks that will do trunks will use it. So uh, come be a part of that. And Michael's got one more announcement for you. <laughs> Almost. 